1 Corinthians 15. We are getting close to the end of 1 Corinthians, and I'm hoping to do 2 Corinthians. I was looking at the calendar, and I'm going to have to go a lot faster on 2 Corinthians than I did on 1 if we're going to get done by May. Um, but I'm not going to start speeding up just yet because this is one of the great, great passages in the whole Bible, one of the great chapters in the Bible. In fact, I was thinking about it one day. If you were, if you had to go somewhere that didn't have any scripture at all, and you could only take one chapter of the Bible, which one would you take? That's a very good question to ponder. And I came down to either John 3, or Romans 3 or 5, or this one. Those are the ones where I think the, the truths of the gospel are, both, are most evident and expressed. The, the thing about 1 Corinthians 15 is it answers three very important questions. It answers the question, what is the gospel? It answers the question, how do we know that we how do we know that what we believe is true? And it answers the question, what will things be like for us in eternity? Those are three pretty important questions, aren't they? What is the gospel? How do we know it's true? And what's the future? What does forever look like for us? Well, the part we're going to look at tonight is going to touch on the first two of those questions. What is the gospel and how do we know it's true? And the reason for this chapter being written, we're going to see is a little surprising. This is a chapter that's often preached at Easter. And so we may think of it as about Easter Sunday. And it does talk about the resurrection of Jesus, but believe it or not, that's not actually the main topic of the chapter. So we'll get into that in a moment, but let's start with verses one and two. And by the way, just to catch you up to speed, 1 Corinthians, of course, was, because it's been a while since we've talked about this book of the Bible, hadn't it? It's been since late, December. First uh, Corinthians is written to a church in, in uh, Roman-occupied Greece, a church that was full of problems uh, with a group of people that thought they had all the answers, that sort of ran things and considered themselves super spiritual. So Paul has talked to them about not about guarding the unity of the church by not exalting one preacher over another but being united in the name of Christ. He's talked to them about how to handle people in the church who are living in ways that are not godly. Um, he's talked to them about the fact that we are the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ in a local setting. And so every single member is equally valuable. Even if we don't see the value in one member compared to another, God does. And so every member matters, no matter how much they give, no matter how much we think they're gifted, um, no matter how talented or, or valuable we think they are, God says that person has a play, has a part to play. Uh, the chapter 13 was all about the love that we are supposed to have for one another within the body of Christ and demonstrate to the world by the way we love each other. And then chapter 14, which we got done with right before Christmas, was about uh, the idea of speaking in tongues and, and the very controversial opinion today which isn't an opinion at all because it's the, the actual thesis of chapter 14, which is don't forbid anybody from speaking in tongues. It's a legitimate uh, gift from God, and yet it's not something you should aspire to. If you want to aspire to a gift, Paul says, aspire to prophecy because that helps others, whereas speaking in tongues only blesses you. So uh, if you are interested in hearing more about that, you can go back and see that on the, on the, the all these Bible studies are archived. You can listen to that one and, uh, if you have any questions, just uh, send them to Alan. Um, so, 
Chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. I, I need to remind you of the gospel, he says. He's 15 chapters in, and now he's going to preach the gospel to them. It's always a good reminder, and this is something I didn't realize until late later in my life, that the gospel is just as valuable and we need to hear it just as much if we've been saved for 50 years as if we don't even know about Jesus. The gospel I always thought growing up was how you got saved, and it is, but the gospel is actually what you live by. You can never get enough of the gospel as a Christian. You can never, it can get stale if the preacher or the teacher doesn't know how to present it but the gospel itself never becomes irrelevant or outdated. Um, the church didn't spread, didn't spread throughout the ancient world and conquer the Roman Empire because the early Christians went around wagging their fingers at sinners and telling them, you're doing it all wrong and you need to change. No, the gospel spread because those early Christians had good news. They were slaves, they were impoverished, they had no social standing, and yet, they spread their message because it was good news. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Verse three, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now that sentence right there is beautiful because what Paul's saying is the things we're about to talk about, this is the peak. This is the big deal for us as Christians. Don't lose sight of this. And I, I, I like the way Paul, uh, Philip Yancey puts it. He says, uh, you know, he tells the story of somebody bought him a one volume uh, copy of the Oxford English Dictionary. He said there's like a dozen volumes normally, but you can buy a one volume version. The only problem is the print's so small you can't read it. And somebody bought it for him just sort of as a gag because he's a writer. But he said, if you, what I found is I, I have this, this uh, magnifying glass. It's one of those big on a, on a swivel arm like a, a jeweler will use. And he said, if I swivel that over, that dictionary, and then I take one of those hand magnifying glasses and put it under there. If I look through both of those, I can read the words perfectly. As long as I'm looking right in the center of that glass, those two glasses, I can read the words perfectly. And then when I get out into the edges, it starts to get blurry. And he said, that reminds me of us as Christians. He said, the center of our faith is Jesus. The center of our faith is the good news about Jesus Christ. As long as we stay focused on that, then everything's clear. It's when we get off into the margins the things that are further away from Jesus, still part of the Christian faith, but further away, that's when things get blurry. That's when things get murky. I think that's a good uh, analogy. He said, these things are of first importance. He said that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. Now, who is Cephas? Peter, that's right. Cephas is actually Peter in Aramaic. Uh, it's kind of confusing. He, he was given the name Simon by his parents. Jesus gave him the name Cephas, which translated into Greek is Petros, which then translated in English is Peter. And yet sometimes in the scriptures, we see that the author, like Paul here, decides to call him by that Aramaic version instead of the Greek version. That he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Now we, that's, this is the only record in the whole Bible of that incident. 
We don't know anything else about it, where it took place, who these 500 were. Did it include the 12 disciples? Did it include any of the people we're familiar with? We don't know. This is all we know about that story. But what Paul is saying is, this is how many people saw him raised. And, and, and he says next, most of whom are alive, though some have fallen asleep. Now, why does he say that? He's saying there are still hundreds of people on earth today who saw Jesus risen from the grave. If you don't believe me, go ask them. Their names are well known. They don't keep it secret. Go check with them. Now, keep that in mind. That's an important aspect that Paul says that. He says in verse 8, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. By the way, let me just stop and say, when Paul says these kinds of things about himself, I'm the least of the apostles, I'm the chief of sinners, that's not false humility. Y'all are familiar with false humility, I'm sure. You see it in evidence in politicians and preachers and other people who get up in front of crowds, uh, celebrities when they win awards. This is real. This is Paul who never stopped remembering. I guess a better way to say is he never forgot that he was saved by the grace of God and the grace of God alone. If old Paul ever got it in his head that he deserved heaven and salvation because of all the people he'd preached to and all the churches he'd planted. All he had to do was think back to, what was I before I met Jesus on the road to Damascus? In fact, what was I on the way to Damascus to do? To put Christians in prison, to stop the spread of the church. Paul never forgot that. And it wasn't that he felt guilt about it. Because guilt is unproductive once you've repented. No, that wasn't what it was about. Paul knew he was saved. He rejoiced in the Lord, but he never forgot. I am what I am only by God's grace. And that's why he says these things. And he says, he appeared to me last of all. I'm not bragging about the, the fact that he appeared to me. Because he appeared to these other people in the flesh while, while he was still on earth. He waited to appear to me until much later. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Whether, it was that, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. One more thing before we move on. When he says he appeared to James, do you know which James that is? He's talking about his brother. He's not talking about James the apostle. He's talking about James, as they called him in those days, James the Just, the, the brother of Jesus, the author of the book of James in the Bible. And I've said it before. You've probably heard me say it. To me, one of the great proofs that the resurrection is real, that Jesus is who he said he is, is that his own brother called him Lord. His own brother, who, by the way, didn't believe him for, during his earthly ministry and became a believer after Christ's death and resurrection when it was least advantageous to do so. So uh, those are the people who saw Christ risen. Now in verse 12, he goes on to his argument. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? See, this is the heart of the chapter. This is not actually a chapter about Easter Sunday, although 
Paul is talking about the resurrection of Jesus is really about our resurrection that he's talking about. And there are a lot of Christians, sad to say, that don't know that we've got a resurrection coming. And remember what I talked about Sunday when I talked about how the soul is not the spirit inside of us that flies up to heaven when we die, right? Now, we know that uh, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, so we, there is part of us that lives forever, and that's true, but that's not the hope. That's not the hope of Scripture. That's, that's a Greek idea. That comes from the Greek philosophers like Plato, this idea that the, your whole goal is to get out of this earthly body and away to some place where you can be disembodied. Now, the biblical hope is that there's going to be a resurrection at the end, and you will dwell in a body in a resurrected form alongside God. Believe it or not, they believed that before Jesus came along. The Jews believed, at least the Pharisee side of, the Ju of Judaism, believed in a resurrection of the dead at the end of time. What's happening here is uh, Jesus comes along and says, let me show you what that resurrection looks like. It's going to start with me. Um, so the reason Paul is writing this is there was a teaching in Corinth. Some of the people there were starting to believe, well, there's not really going to be a resurrection. We don't know why. Maybe some Sadducees had gotten there and had preached their version of Judaism, or more likely it was the fact that these were Greek people and they just, they weren't used to this idea. You know, they were used to the Greek idea that you, you don't need a body after death. You want to go away and get out of these dirty and and sullied bodies and get into uh, the pure uh, spirit world. But Paul says, hey, Jesus rose from the dead and that's proof that we will rise. Verse 13, he says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. You notice he's repeating himself. That's because this is that important to Paul. If we're not raised, then Christ hasn't been raised. If there's no resurrection, then Easter was a lie. Now here's why that's important. Verse 17, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So what Paul says is the whole Christian faith hinges on this one event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Christ is not raised, then we have no faith. Then we've been pretending and we've been uh, believing a lie, and we are still in our sins. And our death is indeed final. And there is no forgiveness, and there is no union with Christ. We've been fooling ourselves. We've been buying into a lot of mumbo-jumbo, and that's what the world says. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In other words, People who die in Jesus, we talk at all the, we say all these glowing things about seeing them in the, in the afterlife. Well, that's all nonsense then. If Christ is not raised, then we'll never see them again. If Christ is not raised, the hope that we have now is dashed. And therefore, we are the most pitiful people on earth. I think what Paul's saying is, if that's true, then the people who run around saying, oh, just eat and drink because tomorrow you may die, are right. 
The people who, who uh, throw off restraint and don't care about anybody but just get what they can for themselves while they can, they're the ones who are in the right. They're living the smart life if Christ is not raised. Why yoke yourself to a God who doesn't exist? Why, why bend your life to follow a moral code? Why try your best to, to love others if you're just going to die anyway? You see what Paul's saying? It's all hinging on the resurrection. And so that brings us to those two questions. What is the gospel and how do we know the gospel is true? Well, what is the gospel? Again, we often think of the gospel as the plan of salvation. I don't know how old you were when you asked Jesus to be your savior, but you can probably think back to that time, whether you were a child or an adult, when someone uh, came along and shared the gospel with you. Can I just stop and tell you a really neat story that happened to me yesterday? Okay, this only only vaguely relates to this, but um, so we got a phone call yesterday morning. I'm probably going to tell this story on Sunday too, so just humor me. But got a phone call yesterday morning that there was a call from a man from out of town saying, my brother-in-law lives in your area and he's not doing well, uh, needs a preacher to go visit him. Well, is he a member of our church? No. Does he have any connection to our church? No. Well, okay, I'll go. So I went out there yesterday and you know found this man lying in his bed, you know, lying in a hospital bed in his living room and talked to him for a while. And after a while, it became very obvious. The reason he wanted me there was he wanted to accept Jesus. And it was very clear that he knew what was going on. He's 89 years old. He'd been in church occasionally, but he'd never accepted Christ, never really went to church very often. And I said, well, so if, if I lead you in a prayer of salvation, would you pray along with me? Yes, I would. And so we prayed together. And he asked Jesus to be his Savior. Um, and I, we talked afterwards and he said, well, I've, I've heard you need to be baptized. And I said, yeah, baptism is important, but uh, you don't have to be baptized to be saved. I said, if you get back on your feet and you come to our church, I'll be happy to baptize you. But that's that's not necessary for you to get to heaven. I explained that baptism is like a wedding ring. If I lose my wedding ring, I'm still married. It's just a symbol that I am married. And uh, I said, well, you've done what happened today is all you need to know. And I left just feeling wonderful, just blessed. And I'm driving home and I had to make a stop on the way home. And as I pulled into the parking lot of this store where I was stopping, it suddenly hit me just two days before I'd been praying during my quiet time and I was just, I was lamenting the fact that I just, I hadn't shared the gospel with anybody aside from preaching in a long time. I just, it had been so long since I'd witnessed to someone. And I, I just, I said, Lord, would you give me an opportunity to tell somebody about you sometime soon? And that memory came back to me and I thought, you know, there was no, because I even asked him, I said, uh, you know, this man, I said, why did you call our church out of all the churches? Have you ever been to our church? No. Why did you call our church? He said, I don't know. Well, now I understood. I mean, if I hadn't prayed that prayer, some other minister would have had that privilege, but God in his grace let me have that opportunity. And it's just such a blessing. So when you pray for opportunities, God answers. All right. So what is the gospel? Gospel is not just how you get saved. 
this, in fact, could be the, the earliest written gospel presentation. Paul says, if you believe this, it'll save you. Uh, the, the word gospel literally means good news. And remember, that's important too, because every other religion offers good advice. Every other religion offers good ethics, good rules, but only Jesus offers good news. Think about that concept. Imagine, just imagine you live in a city that's about to be invaded by a foreign army in the ancient world. And so all the young men gather and they put on armor. They're not warriors, but they're going to defend the city. And they march out through the gates of the city and they're gone for days. And then a runner comes from the battlefield, all out of breath. And you let him in and the whole city gathers because they want to hear. And once he finally catches his breath, his first words are, I have good news. Now, what do you think that news is going to be? If that guy says there's good news, you know the news is your army won. That means you're saved. That means you're not going to be conquered. You're not going to be killed. And that's the same term that's used for the word gospel. It is good news. The good news is that there is a God and that he loves us enough to die for us. The good news is there's a reason for the problems in our world today. There's a reason for the sickness and the sorrow that you are going through. And it's related to sin, but there's an answer to that problem. And that answer has already been delivered form of Jesus. And Jesus came not to be an example, not to be just a teacher. Can you imagine how lost we would be if that's all he was? Because none of us can follow all the commands. Because none of us can live up to his example. He came to be a savior. He came to die in our place. Our sins are so bad we can't save ourselves, but Jesus is so good he's willing to die for us. And then that's not even the end of the good news. The, the, the end of the good news is that he rose again. Therefore, he didn't just conquer our sin, but he conquered death for us. And the ultimate end of the good news is he's coming back and he will reign over us as king. That's the gospel. It's absolutely good news. I, I, somebody has summed it up this way. I've, I've looked and looked. I can't figure out who originally said this, but uh, in the gospel, we find out we're more sinful than we ever thought but we're more loved than we ever dreamed. We're more sinful than we ever thought, but we're more loved than we ever dreamed. That's the gospel. And then that second question, how do we know the gospel's true? And the simple answer is the resurrection. That's the hinge point. That's, that is how we know. Think about it this way. Every other religion you can name is impossible to disprove. You, if somebody wants to believe in the Quran, if someone wants to believe in the teachings of Buddha, if someone wants to believe in the Book of Mormon or the Bhagavad Gita or whatever you want to name, I can't disprove them. They've chosen to believe these teachings are the way to God. I can't say anything to disprove that. We'll just have to find out, right? Only Christianity stands or falls based on a specific historical event. Therefore, because Christianity is the only one you can disprove, it's also the only one you can prove. It's not just every other religion is a guy saying, I've met with God and here's what he said. But Christianity is Jesus saying, I am God and here's what I'm doing for you. And based on whether or not he rose, that tells us whether or not he was right. Because, in the, you know, in the the famous analogy of C.S. Lewis, 
You can't, the one thing you can't say about Jesus is that he was just another good teacher. Because good teachers don't say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Good teachers don't say that I am the Word, the eternal Word, and I'm the Word made flesh. Good teachers don't let people call them my Lord and my God like Thomas did without correcting them. Jesus made claims about himself that mean either one of three things are true. Either he was lying, in which case he's a con man, or he's crazy and really thought these things about himself like some people do, or he was right. You have to choose. Jesus uh, bases, it, it all comes down to if he died and stayed in the tomb, then he was either a liar or a lunatic. But if he rose, then he's Lord. It's as simple as that. But how do you prove or disprove it? Well, obviously you and I can't see the risen Christ for ourselves, but there are evidences that he rose. Let me take you through four of them. There are more than that, but there are four. These are the ones that I find most convincing. One is the empty tomb. We know the tomb was empty because it's recorded in all four Gospels, but not just that. We know it because it would have been easy to shut down the Christian faith before it started by simply saying, well, no, Jesus isn't risen. Let me take you to where his tomb is. Remember, the early Christians, their message was not, here are the rules. Their message was Christ is risen. Well, it would have been easy to stop it in its tracks by saying, no, he's right there in that tomb, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, right there outside Jerusalem. The empty tomb was there for all to see. The fact that they had to make up a story, a conspiracy theory, really, about guards falling asleep or being bribed and the disciples stealing his body is a form of proof. That's the best they could do because they didn't have any other explanation for why that tomb was empty. Second proof, the eyewitnesses. Remember what we said. Paul said there are over 500 still alive. You can go check with them if you want to. Why would he say that? Because he knew there might be some who read his book at the time who thought, well, I'm just not sure Jesus was really risen. I'll go check it out. Now, many of these people, history records, died for their belief, died for what they knew to be true. And whenever I talk about that to non-Christians, they'll come back with, well, people die for their religion all the time. People will strap bombs to themselves and go into buildings and kill hundreds by taking their own lives because they believe that's true. And I say, yes, that's the difference. The suicide bomber does what he does because he believes what he's been told, right? Any martyr, you name from any religion, they give their life because they believe what they've been told. But these first generation Christians weren't told. They saw. Do you know anybody who will die for what they know is a lie? I don't. Why would you? Why would you die if you knew what you were saying, that Christ was risen, wasn't true? The fact that so many were willing to do so is, for me, tremendous evidence. Um, number three, the authenticity of the accounts. Now, this is more of a subjective thing, but if you go back to proof number one, the empty tomb, 
you might say, well, okay, so let's just go with this idea that the disciples stole the body. Maybe that's what happened. Okay, let's say that's true. You'd have to think then that those disciples would have to make up the whole story, right? And if they made up the whole story, if it's a human invented story, then why do they look like such fools through the whole thing? Then why invent a story in which their Messiah was crucified? I mean, why would they choose the most uh, disgraceful form of death in all of history? Why would they say that a member of the Sanhedrin, their enemies, buried him? Actually, two members, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Why, if they were making up the story, why would they say that the first eyewitnesses were women in a time when the testimony of women was not accepted in a court of law? The, the accounts that are written in the Gospels are not flattering to the first Christians at all. And they offered a lot of things that they would have had to explain. If you're making up a story, we see this in politics all the time. You make up a story that makes you look good, that gets you off the hook. These stories bear the, 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 uh, bear the witness of authenticity. And then number four, for me, one of the greatest proofs of the resurrection is the existence of Christianity today. Why else would this faith that went against everything that was taught back then flourish? Jews did not believe. They believed in a resurrection at the end of time. They did not believe in a single person being raised from the dead and never dying again. That's unheard of in the Old Testament. That's never talked about uh, among any of the rabbis. It's not something that any Jew believed in. Why, why would these Jewish believers give up animal sacrifice when that was so important to them? They stopped doing it. Why would they start worshiping on Sunday when Saturday had always been the day? Now, of course, the, the Jewish Christians continued going to the, set, to the synagogue or to the temple on Saturday, but they would gather on Sunday and they would celebrate the resurrection because that's when it happened. Why would they change their views on the Messiah? For hundreds of years, the idea of Messiah was a general, a, a ruler, a king, not a suffering servant. Why did they change their minds on that if it wasn't real? Why would they celebrate as the center of their worship communion, the Lord's Supper, which is a reenactment of a crucifixion? You know, if, if you and I had a friend that we thought was really great and that friend was arrested and executed by the state, we wouldn't get together on the day of his death every year and bake little uh, gurneys where he was, uh, you know, stuck with the needle that killed him. We wouldn't celebrate that. Why would these early Christians venerate the cross and celebrate his crucifixion and remember it every single time they gathered? And how did that, that faith spread when it was so countercultural? As Paul said at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, to the Jews, it was, it was scandal. To the Greeks, it was foolishness. And yet, somehow, it continued to spread because the people who knew it was true were just that full of the Holy Spirit. So here's a quote uh, for this point that I love. The emergence of the church ripped a resurrection-shaped hole in history that skeptical historians are powerless to stop up. 
The emergence of the church ripped a resurrection-shaped hole in history that the skeptical historians are powerless to stop up. Just to reiterate that point in a different way, imagine you wanted to start a new religion. Imagine you wanted to make people believe that you had come up with the way to salvation. Uh, there's an old story about uh, a, a French philosopher and one of his friends, not a religious man at all, but one of his friends came to him and said, I've come up with a new religion that I think is going to sweep the whole world. What should I do to make sure people believe it? And the philosopher said, well, that's simple. Get yourself killed and rise again three days later. That's all you have to do. We serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is with me in whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just in time I need him, he's always near. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. He lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. I love that song. When I was in seminary, a buddy of mine said, you know, real reason you know he lives is because the Bible says so. And I think that's important to remember. It says it because it's true. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're grateful for these truths. We're grateful most of all that we do serve a risen Savior. Thank you for the gospel. Help us to live according to it and share it with others. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.